0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
1: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at borough.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrowcom ACAST.
0: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic
1: indicators.
0: Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time, John. How are you?
1: I am very good, very are, good indeed.
0: You've re-acclimatized now that you. I'm still. I have still from the this, frozen north.
1: I have still have a yearning to be back there up on the up on the top of mountains and in the down in the depths of fjords. And oh man, it sounds great. It sounds next time, next time, next time. Take me.
0: To annoy you, could you imagine? What is is that doing?
1: What is that doing? Puffing and puffing, trying to get up a
0: mountain. Exactly, exactly. Hey, listen, I'm not the chain smoker in this relationship. (laughs) Anyway, so you're just the feet on the ground. Feet on the ground. Come here. I
1: was thinking the other day, you know, we were talking about Evergrande. In China, yeah. In China. And they had a big payment due last week. Which they missed. Which they missed. And I was thinking, it reminded me of way back in the 80s, when my brother and Fergus Mann and a few of those heads were renting a house in Stanmore.
0: I love, where's this going?
1: Where's Stanmore in London? Stanmore is, is way up north, west London, is it? Okay. It, it's basically at the end of the Jubilee line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the cheapest
0: area you can get in the Jubilee line. Yeah, land. yeah,
1: exactly. And they were sitting there watching the telly one night, you know, five lads yeah. in a rented house. And, of course, they had missed their payment on their telly and there was a ring at the door. Bing bong! Someone went in and opened the door. A Couple of lads just came in, burst open the door, lifted up the telly as they were watching it, lifted up the telly, yanked the plug out of the wall, and walked out. Repo man. Repo man. And I was thinking,
0: why? Why didn't that happen in China? <laughs> well, it might happen in China. Oh, really? This is the interesting thing. Actually, did you ever see the movie Repo Man? Emilio Estevez.
1: No, but do you know my cousin was a repo man with airplanes? He used to fly into places and basically break it, the planes, take the planes. Yeah, hotwire them. He'd bring a pilot with them. who would hotwire the plane, and he was, he's got amazing stories. But he did one in Colombia, and and <laughs> they hotwired and they were shooting down the runway,
0: and the lads came out with guns. Started <laughs> really? Well, I tell you, we have gone into we didn't. I didn't intend to go in here, but we've gone into the very, very pernicious area of bankruptcy and what happens when a company goes bankrupt and who has the first rights to the assets and who has mm. the last rights to the assets. What sort of creditor are you? Now, it's interesting you mentioned this idea of repoing a claim, right? Because there is a fund in the United States, a real vulture fund, because that's the, what real vulture funds do is they're the repo men of the financial sector, yeah. right? They come in when the carcass is rotting, of the company and they pick the best bits and they leave. That's why they're called vulture funds. Yeah. The company is called Elliott and Associates. And Elliott and Associates has basically spearheaded this idea since the 70s. And their stock and trade was doing exactly that for third world countries that had defaulted. Taking their tellies. Taking their tellies, in effect, yeah. No, taking their t- Impounding their aircraft, impounding bits of their navy, extraordinary stuff. Really? And trying to sell it on the open market. And China... This is the interesting thing. So, the American way of dealing with bankruptcy traditionally has been the repo man mm. that the company goes bust. It's a limited liability company, so its liability is limited. And the bits that are left in the company, the carcass, the repo man goes in and buys at four cents in the dollar, three cents in the dollar, ten cents in the dollar, and then tries flogging them off in the secondary market. That's yeah. actually how it works. Interesting thing in China, Evergrande is bust it's very clear to me that it's much less significant what happens in that company and it's much more significant what it says about the system, mm. right? Because we've said it before, the Yanks have this expression about cockroaches, you never see one, you see a hundred. So if you come in, you've got a cockroach in your apartment in New York, you know it's not just one. Yeah. When bankruptcy happens in property markets that are heavily leveraged, right? It's always a canary in the coal mine, okay? It's always just one, but it's masking many dozens of equally bust companies. Yeah, yeah. Now, the question is for us is, we'll talk about China in a minute, is do the Chinese adopt the American approach traditionally, which is basically allow the companies go bust, or do the central bank of China intervene and keep these companies limping on? Right. Now, my own sense is the Chinese will intervene for a variety of reasons, one of which their property market is too big to fail for them. Or they feel it's too big to fail. We've heard, we keep hearing that
1: phrase. We've always heard that phrase yeah, but yeah. you know, too big to fail. Is that really true? Though? Well, I'll
0: give you uh, there are 90 million. This is, gives you a sense of how ruined the Chinese property market is. How appalling it has been. How malinvestment is all over the place. 90 million empty apartments in China. Jesus. That's more than there are really? people in Germany right? Wow. Okay, this is the, Could they this not is, just this is the know,
1: oversupply? Tip on those apartment blocks on its side and ship it over here.
0: Well your, your grasp of engineering John <laughs> Oh no I'm
1: sure it can be done, I'm sure <laughs> yeah, it can be sure done there's, no,
0: an there's, there's an app for no, that. There's an app seriously so the 90 million right we think our house prices are excessively high and they are but in China it's extraordinary the ratio of house prices to income is now 18 times. In Ireland wow. it's 6 or 7. Jesus. Right? Okay, right. So we're talking about a massive, massive property bubble, like massive, 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 on a, on a monumental scale. And everybody should be aware of this because what happened in China was, and it always happens, and so I'm going to compare it to Japan in a second, mm. but there's always a movement or a moment where policy changes in a country. After the 2008 crash, the Americans realized that the only country left standing was China. America was bust, Europe was bust, yeah. right? and they persuaded the Chinese to pivot their economy away from exports and into domestic consumption. So they said to the Chinese, you can no longer base your growth strategy on exporting to us because we're in a recession. Mm. And longer term, in order to rebalance the world economy, we need China to do a little more of the heavy lifting at home. Right? How do you do that, though? How do you... Did lots of communiques. And, and also, we forget, right? We forget that the world in 2008 was a much more globalized world. It was much better relationships yeah, between true. all the powers. Much better relationships, right? The world now is not like that. That's why America and China have fallen out. And the last Biden-Xi summit, there was, it was an appalling, appalling summit, right? The, the Yanks and the, and, and the Chinese almost screaming at each other. But back then, there was much more sense really? of cooperation. Oh, yeah. The, the relationships between America and China have really gone off You'd the You'd love effect. to be a fly in the wall um, in those meetings. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But let's come back to the idea, right? Massive, massive shift in Chinese policy about 12 years ago. They said, okay, we will fuel the engine of growth domestically. How we do that? We will start lending to real estate, Why did they start lending to real estate? Because real estate has this thing called the wealth effect, that as your house prices rise, you feel richer Mm. and you take on more debt because you feel, well, hold on a second, my balance sheet looks okay because my house is worth twice of what it was last year. Therefore, I can take on twice as much debt. This
1: was Ireland 2005, 2006.
0: You go all the way back, railway shares, go back to the South Sea bubble, go back to all sorts of speculative manias. They're all based on the same idea of your balance sheet playing tricks on you. That what looks good objectively is subjectively a disaster. So objectively, it looks, everything looks fine, but you're taking on more and more debt. So, of course, because China is a state-run country, the state-run banks were at the vanguard of this, right? So they would go and borrow from the Chinese Central Bank. They would then lend down to Chinese people. Chinese people would buy the apartments that the developers were building. And you get to this crazy situation where there's 90 million oversupply in China. Right. And oversupply is always the case that they built apartments in the wrong place. Yeah. At the wrong price for the wrong people. Yeah, so
1: we were talking the other day about how they were blowing up. Was it five apartment blocks? Yeah. Massive apartment well, blocks. You,
0: just think in the Irish context of our ghost estates, you know, mm. big, uh, big, big estates in outside towns in Roscommon that nobody was ever going to live in. Right. Yeah. Same idea. So you get this huge oversupply and then that creates a dilemma. Because how do you deflate a property bubble without imploding the balance sheet of the companies and the people involved? So it's a very, very hard thing to do. And it has to take 10 or 11 years to be able to try and do this, right? During this period, this is a problem, is one or two of those heavily leveraged companies will begin to run out of money, right? And the reason yeah. they begin to run out of money is that they're borrowing all this Money in order to invest in property. If there's any sort of wobble in the property market, any sort of income drying up, okay, what basically happens is that company begins to have difficulties paying its debts. But much more interestingly is that once a company begins to bleed in a bubble, right, everybody who ever, ever lent money to that company thinks, oh shit let's get in the front let's get in the front of the queue yeah. and demand so what happens is credit cycles when things are going great your maturity goes tends to be very long so you can borrow for somebody say i'll give you that back in 5 years time mm. right or in 10 years time right mm. and if your balance sheet looks okay that's fine but once people begin to panic right suddenly everybody who's a creditor says no i want my money back today and your credit Lines shrink dramatically and your maturity shrink dramatically. This is how companies go bust, right? Yeah, yeah. So, this is, I believe, what is happening deep within the Chinese firmament, like very, very deep. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party is putting a brave face on it. And they're, what they're saying is oh, it's only one bad egg. So, they're saying Evergrande is uniquely delinquent. That is never the case. It's never the case. There's only one bad... Act. It's a bit like in Ireland they said, oh, it was only Anglo was bad. <laughs> yeah. Every single Irish bank was bust. Yeah. Every single one needed yeah, yeah. a bailout. Right? It wasn't just Anglo. And of course what happens is because all the banks lent to each other, suddenly... When all the banks started to and say, it's well... A
1: cascading it's, it's
0: a cascading effect. It's a cascading effect. It's exactly like, if you ever see... The image I would think of credit is, and you like this because you're into nature, right? <laughs> Do you know the way, if you ever watch in the, in the Kalahari Desert, right? Yeah. When the rains come in, right? And the, and the, the rains begin to spread across and there's all verdant life. Yeah, and it, springs you know, into action. Springs into action and you get all these wildebeest coming and hanging out there in this kind of marsh. And then gradually the rains recede and it gets hot and the water evaporates. And very, very soon what looked like a big lake ends up looking like a puddle. That's exactly how credit behaves in the economy. In good times, it's everywhere. In bad times, it's nowhere. So that's where I think we are at in China. And what is critical is to understand that for the global economy, China has been two things. It has been the huge, huge dynamo of growth Mm -hmm. for commodities, for all sorts of countries that take things out of the ground and sell, right? And it's been a source of enormous, enormous manufacturing prowess for all of Asia. If the Chinese economy follows the path of the Japanese economy, okay, if what is happening now in China is what happened in the 1980s, late 1980s in Japan, we're in for a huge shock to the system in Asia, And because Asia is the only part of the global economy that has been really growing rapidly, can you imagine the ramifications for the rest of the world? So that's what we're going to focus on today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Okay, Mark, just before we move on to Japan, because I'm curious about that, what if the Chinese economy, given the fact that it's so centralised, what
0: if they adopted an MMT-type policy? I, I think they will. I think they will adopt an MMT type policy. Oh, right. And I think the MMT is actually, if you think about it, MMT is the monetary policy of communist states. So if you imagine the Soviet Union many years ago, the Soviet Union just printed money. They printed rubles. Yeah. And they printed rubles. But the problem was the Soviet economy, and this is always the problem with inflation, right, is that. Printing money is not a problem as long as your economy is sufficiently flexible and has got the huge supply-side capacity in order to actually sell goods to you. Okay. So basically the, basically the money isn't chasing fewer goods, it's chasing the same amount of goods. In the Soviet Union, what happened in the Soviet Union? The Soviet Union was basically ended up being a delinquent petro-state. You know, so it's a, it's a, that's all it was. It was yeah. And it used to hope and pray for increases in the price of oil in order to finance itself internally, right? Which is why you could argue that in the 1970s, the increase in the oil price as a result of the Arab-Israeli wars was a complete godsend to the communists in the Soviet Union because it gave them another 10 years of revenue. Yeah, So Anyway, so MMT, they will do something like this and I think they will intervene, right? And they will try as much as possible to prevent a... Banking, stroke, property, stroke, credit collapse, right? Will they be successful? My sense is no, that it's Ooh. very, very difficult, even if you're the size of, the, of China, to manage these things. And even if you do manage it, the ramifications of falling real estate prices on Chinese wealth and the Chinese sense of security will be profound. So the economy will go into a recession anyway. But it's amazing that they didn't see this coming, well, And how they let it get so far. Do you remember last week we were talking to Dan Ariely? Yeah. he was talking about when people are incredibly committed to an idea, whether that's aliens <laughs> or the yes, yeah, yes, state, yes, okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, No, it's not that they don't see it coming. They can't bring themselves to see it coming because they understand that the consequence of being wrong is so apocalyptic and they've devoted so much of their effort. So if you're sitting in the Politburo, you're thinking, okay, our promise to the Chinese people used to be, we will make you all equal. That was the Mao yeah. promise. Then, with Xi Jinping, was, we will make you all rich. So that was the whole promise. You know, We, we don't care how you get there, but we're going to increase yeah. living standards, right? If you can't make your people rich through real estate, which was in effect what they were doing, then the social contract between the Communist Party and the people has broken down. Now, it's not to say the Communist Party is going anywhere. Of course not. As we said last week, China is a country with a 3,000-year centralised government history. Yeah, It's not going anywhere quickly. Yeah. But be that as it may, the ramifications of a property crash in China are really significant. And what I find fascinating are the parallels with Japan. So, so tell us about Japan. What is the Japanese story then? Well, the Japanese story is absolutely fascinating. Do you remember we did a podcast years ago on the Meiji Restoration. Meiji, yes, yeah, was I do, violent, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the Meiji Restoration was this extraordinary change in Japanese economic, social, legal policy and a massive change in what it meant to be Japanese.
1: What so, year are we talking?
0: Uh, six, uh, 18, 1867, 1868. Yeah. And of course, uh, it was in reaction to something that happened in China. So when the Brits uh, imposed the opium war and the chinese and blockaded chinese ports in the 1850s the japanese looked at that and said okay the reason china despite its huge size has been laid low and belittled by these westerners is that technologically china is backward and the japanese looked at themselves they said technologically we are backward too and right. what actually prompted the total freak out was the arrival of two U.S. naval ships, uninvited, into Tokyo Harbour in 1867. Right. And the reason the Americans were there is that the Americans had just kicked the Mexicans out of California, right? Yes, yeah. And therefore the Americans had a Pacific... Coast that they had to protect. They'd never had that before. Yeah. If you think we forget about that. So in order to do that, to build up the Pacific Fleet, which is the one that the Japanese attacked in Pearl Harbor, the same one, yeah. except the antecedent of this, and they were kind of mooching around the Pacific, you know, sticking their nose in. Yeah, looking for something to do. Yeah, looking for, and looking for trouble. And yeah. of course, the Japanese understood two things. One is they were technologically backward, and two, they have no energy. Right. So yeah. Japan and Germany are quite similar in many many ways, but from an economic perspective is both of them have no energy. So they are carbon burners on a monumental scale. They basically, Japan and Germany, turn fossil fuels into cars. Yes. That's, think about that yeah, model, yeah, right? Yeah, That's yeah. what they do, right? So the Meiji Restoration is when the Japanese said, unless we become technologically better than the Westerners, they will do to us what they've done to China. Right. So this extraordinary, mad change for society from the top down and from the top down, matters to what I'm going to talk about. Because at its core, real estate speculation, at its very, very core, is the extreme form of Western capitalism. Western capitalism based on Adam Smith. It's about the individual. It's about the liberalization of markets. It's about the market. It's about the invisible hand. The market can't be wrong. So ultimately, speculation is something that the Japanese, and to a degree the Chinese, but certainly the Japanese look down their nose at. So the Japanese economy has always prided itself in being a collective idea. And the Japanese have always looked down their nose on this idea of the rational man making economic decisions a la Adam Smith. And they've always thought, and I'll give you the the terms in Japanese, right? Yeah. There's a Japanese worldview which is called Nihon Jinron. I'm not sure if the pronunciation is right. (laughs) But, but it's convincing. You shouldn't have said that. Keep going. We could do our fake Japanese accents. No, don't. But, that no, we get, no, no, no. but then we get cancelled. Yeah. That's the Pavlovian response of a Canadian millennial to an Irish <laughs> Egypt, just about to put on a Japanese accent. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But that's loosely translated as Japan is unique, right? That The Japanese believe that they are different. So much so that in the 1980s, they used to make the claim that Japanese... Intestines were different to Westerners, and what? Japanese brains were different to all this mad stuff, right yeah, but they have these really fascinating
1: ideas right well, I'll tell you one thing about Japanese culture and the Japanese way is I did a lot of work in Japan as, yeah, a, as, as a recording engineer, there was one guy I worked with, a guy called Aichi Izawa, and i'm liking him already he was he was a huge star in Japan we worked with them in London and Aichi said one day, "Ah, oh, got a great idea for a solo. And he jumped on the keyboard and he started doing this solo. And I was, I looked around at George and went, this is crap. And he goes, leave it, leave it. It's actually good. And it's interesting that he, he was listening and hearing melodies in a completely different way. And if you look at, at Japanese and indeed Chinese traditional music instruments, there's no bass. There's no bass instruments at all. Really? So there is a different way of, of listening, of hearing. hearing.
0: Yeah. So they could be right. Yeah. That Japan is unique. Possibly. Okay. They also, like, listen, we'll we go with that because they also have this idea called wa, which means social harmony. Okay. And this is essential to the Japanese way of thinking, right? And underscoring that is a distrust of individualism, which is why Japanese people tend to be very respectful of authority. Yeah. They take orders because this idea of social harmony is culturally very, very important to them. Right. So you take that as a different philosophy on the world. Back to your idea of maybe they listen to music differently. They yeah. don't use basses, all that sort of stuff. And you know, I presume the bass is kind of central to our music. Yeah. Yeah. So their idea was that they could never, ever really end up speculating on real estate. It would be completely out of character. So just take that as, as, as our starting point. They end up with the biggest property bubble, boom, bust, collapse ever seen. Ever seen. So the right. question is, what happened? If you take Japanese philosophy and Japanese history, which has been subservient to central control, and the individual should always be frugal and you should play down your wealth, yeah. and you should never be flashy because that upsets social harmony, then how in the late 80s did they get to a situation where the land upon which the imperial palace was built in Tokyo was worth more than the entire real estate of California. What? Okay? Really? Of California. Jesus. Right? So how does that happen? So you've got to go back. And, and the reason, again, keep looking at the parallels between China and Japan. Japan has this phenomenal post-war record of growth. The economy grew between 8 and 10% every year from the destruction at Nagasaki yeah. in 1945. So, so yeah, I think, I th- yeah. th-
1: that's something that always made me curious was how come Japan rebounded so quickly after the Second Very World War? Very good
0: question. And how come Germany rebounded yes, so quickly? Yeah. So I don't think enough thought has gone into this, right? The Americans under McKinnon, so the Americans, you know, this greatest generation of Americans, the Americans who came up with the Marshall aid plan. Yeah. They had this extraordinary internal policy called adult supervision. So the Americans <laughs> would be the adults in the playground. Now, listen, right, 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 and right. all the rest of the world had to be supervised. This is this is fascinating stuff, right? They also did something extraordinary. The, Amer- the Americans treated their enemies better after the Second World War than they treated their allies. So why was that? Okay. Go on, tell us, tell us. This is re- it's really interesting. So, for example, after the Second World War, the Americans got the Brits to pay back all the money that the Brits had borrowed for them to fight the war. Oh, right. They wiped all the debts of Germany. Right? Think about it. If you're British, you're kind of Mm. thinking, hold on a second. The way the Americans treated the French, who were their allies, were incredibly hostile and vice versa all the way through. Yeah. That the Americans took the Versailles Treaty seriously. They took the mistakes that were made after the First World War very seriously. The Brits and the French really never did. So the Americans said, okay, the two countries that are the biggest threat to us are Japan and Germany. And they will remain a threat as long as they are economically underperforming. Right. So the Americans, can you believe the Americans had a stipulation in the Marshall Plan that American companies had to buy a certain percentage of German goods and Japanese goods? Right. So they actually took these economies that they had destroyed by carpet bombing and they limped them back to health. And they ensured that both of these economies grew much quicker than everybody else. And both of these societies would be indebted to the United States.
1: So there wasn't a... taking away the reason...
0: Taking away the reason for aggression. Yeah. They realized that Germany and Japan had an extraordinarily sophisticated military infrastructure by the time they were fighting. And all countries, if you look at the history of all economics all great technology tends to come from the military. The internet came from the military, right? Lots of bits of the iPhone come from the military. So the military, anything that a state puts enormous amounts of resources, money and brain power, into outwitting its neighbours, into outfoxing its neighbours, is usually going to be extremely beneficial in commercial life after a war. And the Americans understood this. So they understood that the Brits and the French didn't have that technology that the Germans had. They didn't have that industrial prowess or the Japanese. But what they did, and I don't think the West really appreciated that is that they favored their enemies over their allies because they could count on their allies. They knew that the Brits and the French and Western Europe weren't going to threaten them in any way. Yeah, But Germany, hold on a second, this is a different. And this exactly the same in, in Asia. So they preferenced the Japanese. They gave them technology, they gave them transfers, they gave them free loans, they gave them everything to rebuild their economy. And therefore you see this extraordinary performance, which is Japan is destroyed after the Second World War. By 1968, that's not so long after the Second World War, it was the second largest economy in the world.
1: Yeah. And what was the yeah. third? Jordan, Germany.
0: Right. West Germany. Yeah. Right? So the Americans had a plan, and that plan was to make sure that their former enemies were treated better than their former friends which if you're a former friend of America, you might get a little bit pissed off. Yeah. So Japan is this extraordinary, I'm going I'm to go through some figures here, right? So Japan is this amazing economy, right? Yeah. It grows unbelievably quickly. With all the brands, the Sonys, Toshibas, all the ones we know, right? Yeah. Toyotas, Datsuns, the whole thing, right? Datsuns, yeah, Jesus. Do you remember them? L- love a Datsun. <laughs> love a, love Datsun. a Datsun, my auntie, a Datsun. <laughs> Great car, brown, big brown Datsun. But so 25 years after the Second World War, It's now the second biggest economy in the world. Its export-led growth was extraordinary. The country's exports expanded at a rate of 15% throughout the 60s and 70s. Right. Up until the oil crash. Okay, Amazing, amazing, right? The trade balance with the United States was in deficit in the 1960s. It was a surplus of 10 billion by 1978, of 60 billion by 1987, and 81 billion by 2000. Wow. So they have a huge trade surplus with the world. And of course, what they did with this money was they bought American treasuries. So they, they again started to play this game against the Yanks. They said, okay, well, what we'll do is we will keep buying the debt of the American government, which allows them to continue growing and which allows them to continue buying our stuff. So right. they bought okay. market share in the long term, even though in the short term they were losing money the Chinese did exactly the same. Right. So now the Japanese are still the biggest holders of American debt and the Chinese are second, right? What are they doing that for? Because everyone would say, why would you invest in a country where the rate of interest is low, lower than yours? Yeah. Because they're buying market share, right? They're making sure the Americans keep spending. So that's the thinking behind it. But also you think in terms of the structure of both of these economies, Japan was a very agricultural country before the Second World War. Quite a feudal state in the agrarian sense, right? The share of population living in urban areas in Japan surged from just 20% in 1945. Okay, so 80% were agricultural to 64% today. So you've this massive shift, urbanization, right? And exactly the same thing happened in China. So agriculture fell in Japan from 20% of total output to 10%. Right, China the same sort of figure from 20% in 1993 to 10% now. So if you look at the Japanese growth rate from 1945 to 1990 when they crashed and you mirror that with the Chinese growth rate from 1990 to now it's almost identical. Right, wow. It's, society is becoming much more urban, yeah. it's becoming much richer, it's creating all sorts of amazing companies it's galvanising the huge intellectual and financial strength of its people, and it's doing it all with American blessing, right? Because the Americans, remember, they took the Chinese into the G7, into the G8, yeah. they, they, they allowed them to join the World Trade Organization, all these things, and the Chinese said, great. But then, and this is where the event happens, the event that changed China, as I said before, was in 2008, 2009, the Americans persuaded them to shift from export growth to domestic growth. Exactly the same thing happened in Japan in 1987. There was a thing called the Plaza Accord, which was an exchange rate mechanism between America, West Germany, and Japan. And the Americans persuaded the Japanese to do exactly the same. What they said to the Japanese was, keep your interest rates low, expand your economy. By keeping your interest rates low, it'll bring down the price of the yen. That'll push up the price of the dollar. This is what we want. The Japanese said, okay. They said, okay. But... You reduce interest rates at a time when the economy is booming. And to use the great expression, Bertie Ahern, <laughs> the boom gets boomier. <laughs> in Bertie's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. Bertie's fantastic language, right? <laughs> so they fueled this extraordinary and completely out of character real estate boom in Japan. So just to give you an example of how mad this was, Tokyo property was selling in 1988 Three hundred and fifty times more per square meter than New York property.
1: Wow! Right? I remember that that time. You know where, where and golf oh, membership and everything yeah. went through the roof, and this, they driving ranges on the top of, of buildings and everything. It was it, it was just crazy. Kind of
0: one of the best leading indicators was the price of golf club membership yeah. in Japan. So the place... I was went, over there in, I think it was 1990. So just at the crash, just when yeah. like the crash, but it would have still felt like a boom town in 1990 because it was still... Yeah, it would sense, have did, very much so. Bit like Ireland, you know, still, even though the Celtic Tiger thing probably peaked about two, 2006, yeah. it's still in 2007, it was still feeling, you know, that everything was hunky-dory. So what you have is a massive shift... In the economy away from exports into real estate real estate is always and everywhere a wealth destroyer because it leads to people feeling richer people getting into more debt and because of the very nature of humanity that we get giddy and excited and all that sort of stuff right the psychology of crowds comes in once we start in these sort of manias right it's the psychology of crowds and everybody convinces themselves that everything's going to be fine. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. The usual stuff, right? Yeah. And, and of course, one of the great leading in cases as well is not just golf club memberships, which went through the roof here, right? Yeah. But also when the people who are experiencing the boom start to buy trophy assets abroad. So do you remember like all the paddies started buying the Ritz and the yeah, in London yeah, yeah, and yeah, putting yeah. Irish flags up and yeah. this and half Dubai. Claridges, uh, all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember all that, right? yeah. yeah. This was part of a movement of sort of expansion. The Japs did exactly the same. They bought Columbia Pictures. They bought the Rockefeller Center in New York. They bought the, they bought the Exxon Building in New York. These are like, these are totemic jewels for America. Yeah. And the Japanese bought them all. And what you tend to find is that all these things, even though they're different in terms of their underlying, they all end up kind of looking the same, these booms, right? And of course, what happened in Japan was the boom, a bit like Evergrande, suddenly one or two companies look a bit dodgy. Yeah, yeah, suddenly, yeah. Suddenly they're yeah. a bit overexposed, they have too much debt. Exactly the same thing that happened to developers here. They went from being rich guys to being bankrupt in a matter of months, right? Yeah. And, and then, of course, there's the entire fight for survival, where everybody's scrambling for cash. And what happened in Japan was Japan went into what they call a balance sheet recession for about 15 years. The economy hardly grew. So having grown 8%, 9 10%, For 40 years, it started to grow 1%, 2%, maybe less. And that became the norm. Why? Because the balance sheet of the country was totally destroyed as a result of the collapse in property prices. Exactly the same thing happened here. The problem with all these things is that people's perception of their wealth gets tied up with property, right? Yeah. It's estimated that 70% of the wealth of urban Chinese households is in real estate, right? Number one. Mm. Because house prices are so expensive, you're getting intergenerational mortgages in China. So you take out a mortgage for your kids. Right. So two or three generations buy the flat because one can't because the prices are so high. It's exactly the same oh, right. thing okay. as happened in Japan, right? So if that sort of market collapses or if it, even, even if property prices begin to fall gradually, the wealth effect is dramatic on the local people. Because the local people have all bought into property as being the asset of choice. So if you look at what happened in Japan, these parallels are striking with China, even down to population dynamics. The Japanese population peaked in 1994, just at the beginning of this long crash. So this crash started in 1989, 1990, right? When is the Chinese population going to peak? In three years' time.
1: Oh, so right. you have exactly okay. the
0: same population dynamics. And this is what happens. If you've got a balance sheet re- recession and a population that's falling, this can go on for a long, long time.
1: So so you're saying the, the long-term outlook of Evergrande is China's just
0: going to go into a long recession. A long balance sheet recession. and Which could last 10, 20 years? Well, the way in which you get out of recessions quickly is... Either you try to hive off your debt to somebody else or you refinance all those bad loans and you kick it out into the future. Or you go through what they call a grinding balance sheet recession or a combination of all three is much more likely. So it's not just one or other. It seems to me that, and I come back to the point, Evergrande is not important. It's what it's saying about the system. is profoundly important. In the same way as individual Japanese banks... Daiwa, all these banks, which were huge banks in the 80s, became small banks. But the fact that they became small wasn't the issue. It was the Japanese system which had leveraged itself to real estate, completely out of character with the Japanese previous philosophy of WA and all these things I was talking about and social harmony, cost the Japanese about two generations of economic growth. Wow. And exactly the same thing could happen in china
1: so what then if if china moves into this lagging period for the next while what will that mean for for the global economy
0: well i mean it's huge the main thing is almost psychological that almost in our entire adult life john china and the chinese story has been one of growth right uh, china yeah. growing china yeah. growing oh my god it's coming out of nowhere blah 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 right that happened in the early 80s they kicked it off with Deng Xiaoping, and it's been growing ever since. If that background noise changes, that China is now limping, China is now a patient, it is no longer this muscular, yeah. thrusting economy, but it's a patient and it's lagging, the whole psychology of the global economy changes profoundly. And in terms, and we'll leave it here, in terms of actually what will happen is take a country like Germany. Germany exports yeah. between 2 and 3% of its GDP to China every year. Just is phenomenal. Yeah. So actually, Mrs. Merkel bet the house in China, bet the German house in China. This will have a profound effect on German exports. This will slow down the German economy. It will therefore reduce any upward pressure on interest rates in Europe. And the long-term or medium-term impact of this will be lower interest rates for countries like Ireland. This means that we should be taking this opportunity to refinance everything. Number one, as I've said before, Mm. take advantage of these low interest rates, but also number two, to get on with any capital projects we want by issuing long-term bonds, availing of the fact that interest rates will remain low because the Chinese are on their knees. And this seems to me to be the implication for us. Fix the infrastructure, fix the train system, fix the transport system, and fix the housing system. And do it with money that would be otherwise more expensive had it not been for this coming Chinese property crash. I'd like to thank all our Patreon supporters, because without you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you all very, very much. And we have a little treat for you coming up. We have a new online course. We have a new entire podcast, Monetary Economics course, and Monetary Economics at the moment is so important. And we have a fantastic course. We're just finishing it. It's going to be with you next Tuesday. So that's the new David Beck-Williams Monetary Economics course online. And if you want to play, become a Patreon.